It's that time of year when you're forced to listen to Christmas music, whether you want to or not. And it's not just here in church, but it's on the radio stations, when you go to the shopping mall, or when you're sitting in a waiting room somewhere, or you're in a restaurant, you just can't get away from it. But I was in a waiting room this week, and I was listening to the music, and you know, I, I, my attention was caught by Oh Holy Night. I love that song. Really hard for men to get those high notes, but I like that song. And then Frosty the Snowman is usual. Then Ave Maria, I recognized that one a bit more. And then a few minutes later, Grandma got run over by a reindeer. And I'm thinking, wow, there must be all kinds of Christmas music out there, I guess. And then this morning, my clock radio was on, and I heard, I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. And so... It's just amazing, the music that we hear this time of year. Now, recently, I confessed to attending a one-room school until grade five, and there were 20 kids, 15, then 10 during my final year, but we always had a Christmas concert. And when I was in grade two, and I was grade two, actually, they, uh, there was a part, I want my, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth. And I was missing my two front teeth. So I'm thinking, I'm perfect for this part. I even practiced at home, and I had that whistle going, you know, all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth, like, like that whistle when you're missing teeth. But I never got the part. It went to Donna Bagnell, who was grade three, and her, she was a year and a half older. Her teeth had all grown back in. So it was a little frustrating to me. Her mother was the MLA in our area, and I don't know if that had anything to do with it. But uh, I got my revenge, kind of, when in grade 6 and 7, we were moved to the big school, 50 students in a two-room school. And I had seven people in my class. And by the way, I was still the top one in my class, even though I wasn't the class myself. But at Christmas, we were doing this presentation called Sunbonnet Sally and Overall Gym. You guys in the front would have no clue what that is. The rest of you might not have any clue. Look it up on the, the, the Internet, and, and you'll find it. So I scored the part of Overall Gym, and there was this beautiful young grade 7 girl playing Sunbonnet Sally, and I had to actually give her a hug at the end. Nobody heard any of what I sang all they heard, saw was me hugging Janet Smith. Anyway, so Christmas music brings back Christmas memories. And music has been a part of the Christmas story right from the beginning. It's not just in recent years. Because in that first Christmas, as you read through Scripture, you see how each time that the message of the arrival of the Son of God was delivered, it was done through a song. So for the next three weeks, we're going to look at some of the songs of Christmas in Scripture. And this week, we're talking about Mary's song. Now, it's a song of praise, and you might have actually called it the Magnificat, which is a Latin word meaning to magnify, to praise, to glorify. So that's what we hear from Mary, the song from the heart that magnifies the Lord. And we're going to study that together. 
See, Mary gets a lot of attention these days, and certainly this time of year. But the truth is, we don't really know very much about Mary at all. If we compiled all the scripture that talks about her, like, we wouldn't even be able to get enough for a short biography. We don't know anything about her life before Jesus. We don't really know how she raised Jesus other than the fact he was perfect. We don't know when and where she died. We don't know much about Mary. But she appears here in the story of Jesus' birth. She makes a few cameo appearances later on with no speaking parts. And she's mentioned a time or two in the book of Acts. And then that's about it. But ironically, historically, the church has made a pretty big deal out of Mary. In fact, more is made of her than we actually read about her in Scripture. And as you're going to see here this morning, we'll notice that more has been made of her than she ever wanted to be made of her as well. See, there are some non-biblical ideas about Mary that we should address before really studying the Song of Mary. And some teach that Mary was sinless, that if she was a sinner, that that would really mess up things with Jesus being this perfect child. But first, uh, in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, we read, everyone has sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. But some people think that Jesus wasn't the only sinless person, that Mary was as well. But Jesus was the only one qualified to be a sacrifice on our behalf because he was the only one that lived a perfect life. Another title sometimes given to Mary, we've got it up here so I can help you with this word, and that is mediatrix. The idea is that she is somehow the mediator between us and God. And when we pray to God, we should be praying through Mary. But in the Bible, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says, There is one God and one mediator so that human beings can reach God. That way is through Christ Jesus, who is himself human. So we pray directly to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. That's how Scripture tells us to pray. Another title that some have given to Mary throughout church history is Co-Redemptrix. And that sounds impressive, doesn't it? And just imagine having that on your business card, like Greg Nicholson, co-redemptrix. Like the biggest, here's the biggest title that I've ever seen on a business card giving to me. Look at this. The Archbishop Primate of the Armenian Apostolic Church of Canada. Like this dude was actually in our church building. The Armenian church has... Uh, a couple of families here in Halifax. One of them was attending our church at the time. And this guy was coming, the archbishop was coming from Montreal to have a prayer service with all the Armenian Christians in the Maritimes. So they gathered here. And he was in our building. But I just wanted to say, you've got to shorten your title a little bit. You're driving people away. But when we read Acts chapter 4, verse 12, we realize that Mary isn't somehow a redeemer along with Jesus. Uh, that Jesus does the saving, and Mary doesn't have a part in that as well. There is salvation in no one else, 
God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. So it's only through Jesus that we find salvation. If there was some other way to be saved, if there was some other way than Jesus becoming a human being, Jesus being beaten and placed upon that cross like he was, if there was some other way for him to overcome all of that suffering, if that was unnecessary, then God would have done it. But there was no other way. Jesus is the only way. And then there's a third title that people sometimes use for Mary, and that is Queen of Heaven. And it is right for us to honor this incredible woman, but it's wrong for us to worship her. It would be wrong for us to give her titles and give her positions that are reserved for Jesus alone. So as we study Mary in Luke chapter 1, it's quite obvious how she wanted to be known because the title she gives to herself isn't Mediatrix or Co-Redemptrix or Queen of Heaven, but she just refers to herself quite simply as a humble servant who magnifies the Lord. So look at Luke 1.26. During Elizabeth's sixth month of pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Now Elizabeth was a cousin of Mary, And she was actually pregnant with John the Baptist, with Jesus' cousin at this time. And the angel Gabriel had to go to Nazareth to deliver this news. Now, this was a small and insignificant town. It was only about on eight acres of land, a population of about 300 people. Gabriel probably had to get out his phone and go to Google Maps in order to find the place. And then... Roughly 50% of the babies died in childbirth in that little town, and the ones that survived had a life expectancy of maybe 30-something. And this is the place where Gabriel is sent. So picking up in verse 27, So Gabriel appears to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and the angel went to her and said, Greetings. You who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Now maybe you've memorized verse 28 as, Hail Mary, full of grace. And the angel describes Mary as someone who is highly favored by God. Now I find that a bit surprising. Because if there were two words that described Mary, highly favored certainly wouldn't have been those words. It would have been something along the lines of completely overlooked. But God does highly favor someone that the world would completely overlook. So Gabriel comes, he gives the announcement to Mary, and she responds in verse 29. It says that Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. And there's that phrase again, you have found favor with God, like God's blessing. So what is it about Mary that enabled her to experience the blessing of God? Like we, we want that. Like we have a deep desire to have God's favor in our lives. We, we want God to bless us. We want to live the type of life that God is going to enrich. We want to have the kind of family that God is going to bless So what is it about Mary 
that brought the blessing of God. The Forbes magazine has their list of the most powerful people in the world. And when you read it, it makes you feel kind of miserable about yourself because the article starts by saying, there are 7 billion people in the world. These are the 70 that matter. And then you look, and your name's not there. And none of yours are there either, so you can't laugh on this one. So when ranking the most important people in the world, the people that really matter, Forbes uses four things. They take these into consideration. Like how many people does the person have power over? Secondly, what kind of financial resources do they control? The third one is, does the person have influence in more than one area or sphere? And then the last one was, how actively do the candidates wield their power? So those are the four criteria that are used in our culture to say who should be on the list of the most important or influential people. Now you'd think that these things were important for God to consider. He's the God of the universe, and he's got one chance to get this thing right, to bring his son into this world. And so he, he wants to bring him in the form of a baby. So what is he looking for? As far as power, Mary's got none. She's not a person of influence at all. She held no political position. She had authority over exactly zero people. Now, she's not yet married to Joseph, and once she's married, then she'll have authority over someone. But at this moment, she has authority over zero people. And, and what about financial resources? Like Mary and Joseph were so poor that the Bible tells us that they couldn't buy a lamb to offer as a sacrifice when they took Jesus to the temple to be dedicated. So they had to actually buy just two birds and offer them as a sacrifice. And it's just a, kind of ironic, isn't it, that they couldn't afford a sacrificial lamb for the sacrificial lamb. And then she had nothing on her resume that anybody would have noticed. There were no impressive accomplishments, no special schooling. She was engaged to a man who wasn't going to be any kind of a ruler. He was just a, a, a carpenter. So Mary wouldn't have made Forbes' list of the most powerful people. And if there were a list for the least powerful people, then she might have had a chance. But here's the thing. God put her on the list of highly favored. So what was it about her? Like, what was God's criteria? There are certainly a number of characteristics that we read about in Scripture. We see things like integrity. We, we see honesty. We see faithfulness. But there's one quality that keeps coming back over and over again in Scripture. And that is the fact that Mary was humble. Like, this was evident in her life. It drew the attention of God more than anything else. Like, a humble spirit, an awareness of how small she was and how big God was. The humility more than any quality opens the door to God's favor in your life. When we humbly say, God, I need your help. Like, I've just made a mess of things here. I can't fix this on my own. And then we say, God... My marriage is in a million broken pieces, but you are the one that can put that back together again. God, I've blown it with my kids, 
but you are the one who can redeem anything. God, I've made some mistakes in the past that I'm not proud of. I know that everyone else has given up on me, but I know that you haven't, and I know that I need your help to put things back together. God, I can't do it, but you can. So you say, God, I've got nothing to offer, but whatever I have is yours. See, God blesses a humble spirit more than anything else. And that humility is what opens the door of God's favor in your life. But the problem is, humility isn't something that we seek. How often do you pray, God, make me more humble? Or if you walk into Indigo or some other bookstore, and you go to the self-help section, and you see all kinds of stuff there in the how to be successful section, how to be powerful, how to get rich. But if you're looking for the how to be humble section, then you, you might as well just forget it. You're not going to found it, find it. There are no bestsellers in that category. But you want the favor of God. And humility more than any other factor is what invites his blessing. Here are some scriptures that talk about humility. Proverbs 3, 34. The Lord mocks the mockers, but is gracious to the humble. Isaiah said, The people I treasure the most are the humble. They depend only on me and tremble when I speak. And then you might be more familiar with James 4. Humble yourself in the Lord's presence, and he will honor you. So again and again, the Bible promises, if you humble yourself before me, and then I will act in your life. I will give you favor. If you quit acting like you've got it all figured out, if you quit acting like you're the answer to all the problems in your life, if you will just call on me and let me work, I will help you. So Mary demonstrates that type of spirit. When Gabriel gives her the news that she will be the mother of Jesus, here's her response in verse 38. And I just love how simple it is. Mary said, I am the servant of the Lord. Let this happen to me as you say. And then the angel went away. And then Mary went to visit her cousin Elizabeth to spend some time with her. And beginning with verse 46, we read the song of Mary. And this comes after Elizabeth has been heaping compliments and praise on Mary. And Mary's response is to sing a song of praise to God. It's not to say how wonderful I am, that I'm giving birth to the Son of God. So here it is, beginning in verse 46. Then Mary said, My soul praises the Lord. My heart rejoices in God my Savior, because he has shown his concern for his humble servant girl. From now on, all people will say that I am blessed. Because the powerful one has done great things for me, his name is holy. God will show his mercy forever and ever to those who worship and serve him. He has done mighty deeds by his power. He has scattered the people who are proud and think great things about themselves. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and raised up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with nothing. He has helped his servant, the people of Israel, remembering to show 
them mercy as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his children forever. So in this song, what does Mary need to do? She first describes how she sees herself. And she says, I'm just a humble servant. So she has an, actually an appropriate view of who she is and what she brings to the table in light of who God is, in light of the power that he has. Like she's all about magnifying God. And the amazing thing is, if you magnify God, then that's going to be bringing praises into your life because you can't put the spotlight on God if you refuse to get off the stage. So Mary goes out of the way at the beginning to say, look, who am I in this? I am just a humble servant. And she uses that phrase in verses 38 and in 48. And servant actually isn't really the best translation here. A better translation would be slave. But most translations don't use the word because they don't want to be offensive. But the thing is, it was offensive then. Mary picks the least impressive title and gives it to herself. She doesn't say mediatrix. She doesn't say co-redemptrix. She says, I am the Lord's servant. I am the Lord's slave. Her response is just a spirit of humility. God, I'm completely yours. That's what she's saying. But when you think about it, Mary had so many reasons to be proud. To go around with a swollen head, as my grandmother would say at any time she saw pride in my life. Of all the women in the world, she was chosen as the one to give birth to the Messiah. She could have found pride in that. Or the fact that she raised a perfect kid. A lot of mothers think that they've raised the perfect son. But there are... A few, there are, excuse me, there are a few things more annoying than mothers who think they have a perfect child. And there are a few things that are more annoying than a mother who thinks she has a perfect son. But Mary doesn't do that. She could have put a bumper sticker on the back of her chariot, you know, my son created your honor roll student. Or remember when Jesus is the reason for the season was popular and we'd see signs everywhere. She could have said, my son is the reason for the season. She could have had pride, but she displayed a spirit of humility. The pride is often something that we struggle with. And the minute that we think, well, pride's not an issue in my life right now, it's back, it's an issue again, because we think that we've got it taken care of. And pride shows up at this time of year. And we'll say, you know, go ahead and buy that for yourself. Like, you can pay it off later. You deserve it now. And this temptation is riding me right now because I'm renovating our bathroom and I see this 12-inch DeWalt miter saw. It's a sliding miter saw. It's dual bevel. I can do amazing things as I put the trim and the casings back on that room afterwards, but it's $25 a month for the next two years at Canadian Tire. Like, but we, we, we convince ourselves, buy it now. Like We need that. Pride tells us, you know, go ahead and, and take that drink. Because you're strong enough now. It's been years since you licked alcoholism. Pride says, I'm not going to apologize to them. 
If they want things to not be awkward over the holidays, then they can come to me and they can make things right with me. But here's what I'm saying. Humility opens the door to God's favor in your life. And pride, it just nails that door shut. Like God can't work. So here's Mary, a humble servant, who's completely overlooked by everyone else, but she's highly favored by God. So in her song, she quickly gives glory to God. Nine times she uses the word he. Six times she uses the word his. And the point is that the song isn't about her. The song is about God's greatness, about God's glory. The song in her heart is all about praising God. So my challenge for us as we approach the Christmas season is to sing that kind of song with our lives. All of our three daughters were amazing sleepers when they were newborns. Some of you don't want to hear this if you have a child that struggles to sleep. But by six to eight weeks, all of them slept eight hours at least at night. And that was great then, but as they got a little older, it led to another problem. They didn't want to get up in the morning. I would go in and I would gently wake them. And finally, Brittany, our oldest, she was grumpy when you woke her up. Let me sleep some more, Dad. Ainsley, our youngest, I have to admit, I can't remember what she was like when I woke her up in the morning. And my wife and I are foggy on a lot of her life, this third child. It's kind of horrible in a way, but she grew, she's here this morning too, she grew up to be this amazing young woman, like scholarships, jobs, and and where'd that come from? We don't know. She's our child, I guess. And and then pride, swollen heads. But, But then Shannon, our middle daughter, leading us in worship here this morning, you'd wake her up, big smile on her face, she'd give you a hug, and then she would start singing. Like she always sang. She always had this song of praise in her life. You're driving in the car and she sees some cows in the field. There are some cows in the field. There's the barn over there. Like she just made a song out of everything. You know, that's, that's what we want. Like we want a song on our hearts. A song of praise on our hearts is a great way to begin the day. Like acknowledging God's greatness can make your problems seem so much smaller. It can remind us of the fact that you know, we don't have to be negative. We can be a positive person. A song of praise can move us from being hopeless to being filled with hope. A song of praise can lead you to being humble instead of prideful because you've taken the focus off yourself and you've put it on God. So that's the challenge that I have for you this morning before you leave, is to get a song of praise in your heart. And Mary's song, in many ways, is a song of faith because Jesus was just a baby. He hadn't sacrificed his life yet. He hadn't risen from the dead yet. But in that song, which she prays when she has become pregnant, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord my Savior. My Savior. So she knew what he was going to become. So that's what we want to do. We want to have a song of praise on our hearts that humbly recognizes who we are and acknowledges how great God is and understands that he is the one who saves.